Let's turn to Ephesians. And we'll be here over the course of this coming term. Um, My wife tells me that I get excited every time there's a new Bible series, and uh, it's the best one in the world. And uh, she said to me this morning, you're even more excited about this one than normal. So there you go. It's wonderful stuff in Ephesians. Now, we're going to spend two Sundays this week and next on chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. We'll read it now and come back to it again next week. Today, we're kind of just getting our way into Ephesians. Folks are going to be joining us over the next couple of weeks in this service as they come back to university. So we'll spend two weeks on chapter 1. Now, just before I read this, in the original Greek, this was one sentence. One sentence, yeah? One to 14, one sentence. Paul would have failed his higher English. But we get three full stops. That's uh, editors have added that for the good of the reader. But try and hear this as a kind of spontaneous outpouring of Paul's heart as he reflects on what it means to be a Christian. So Ephesians 1 and 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Marvelous stuff, but not entirely straightforward. We have a few folks in the church who are doing PhDs in Ephesians, which is a little unnerving. One of them is doing a PhD on Ephesians chapter 1, and one little tiny bit of Ephesians chapter 1, a particular verse. I did question him after the first service as to why he was doing a PhD on Ephesians. He's going to come back to me next week. Now, this letter has many golden nuggets in it. By that, I mean verses that you will know and love let me just uh, highlight a few of them. So chapter 2, verse 8 is, a, is a, a classic verse that describes how we are saved. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. If I wanted a verse to describe what it means to be a Christian, and I wanted to write that on a postcard of somebody's, I often do, or a letter, or an email, Chapter 2, verse 8, just gets the gospel brilliantly. Or chapter 4, verse 4, we're on serving in church today. Wonderful verses about a church 
family as a body that is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. You hear ministers recite these words, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And you think, what on earth does that mean? Or chapter 5, verse 2, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. There's a great motivational verse. And then chapter 6, you know these verses at the end often spoken of, be strong in the Lord, 6.10, and in the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God so that you may take your stand against the devil. For we do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers. And many, many, many more golden nuggets. Now, how could we go wrong? Yet all we need to do every Sunday is find at least one nugget, dig it up, talk about it, apply it, and we send ourselves home happy. Here's how we could go wrong, that we miss the wood for the trees. That we fail to grasp the big picture. And there are two questions you'll see on the service sheet for this morning. And uh, at the end of this term, if you can't answer these two questions then the preachers have done a bad job. And helpfully, as Catherine has prayed, you haven't listened or wrestled with this together. We need to all do that. We've got to know the answers to these questions. Why did Paul write this letter? If we understand why he wrote it, we're going to understand the letter and it's going to hit us in a far more powerful way. And it seems a silly thing to, to, to ask, what, what does the letter say? Now, that's the task I've set for us today in this intro. But let me alert you to the fact that by the end of this introduction, you will not and I will not have grasped Ephesians. Yeah? Because God will... Unpack this with us over time. You don't need me as your teacher in Ephesians or Andy or Neil, whoever the other preachers are in this series. We need the teaching of the Holy Spirit. That's a very different thing. And we're going to learn some theology over the next few weeks. So on the 6th of November, we're going to get a chapter 4 verse 1. And, and Paul will say, okay, having heard all of that, this is how you're to live. There's a bit of me that wants to get a chapter 4, verse 1 today. I want to know what to do tomorrow. And Paul says, come on, hold your horses collectively as churches. Wait and get your head around who God is, who you are, what this little church actually is in God's plan for the world. And then live. Out who you are in Christ. Now, we'll see the richness of that as we run God willing. Now, question one. Why did Paul write this letter? Now, the answer to a question like that is in the Bible. If it's not in the Bible, we shouldn't try and answer it. We, we shouldn't try and find the answer to the question, why did Paul write this letter, by turning to some big thick book on my shelf written by somebody who's done a PhD in Ephesians, not the person in our church who will not write a book like that. Why, 
it gives you all the background to Ephesian culture that some expert has got to get off the shelf before we understand Ephesians. No, we don't need that. All the answers need to be in the Bible. If they're not, don't speculate if they are. If the answers are there, you've got to look for them. Because Paul intends us to. Now, we're told in chapter 1, verse 2, that Paul wrote to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ. That's a kind of key phrase. And what it means is that he writes the letter to a local church, like Chalmers, I guess, in the city of Ephesus back then. That's the context in your mind. And almost certainly the letter was written to this church in Ephesus, and it also had a kind of wider circulation, perhaps to other churches in the city and in the region of Asia Minor. Churches like, and you might know these churches from Revelation, Sardis, Laodicea, Thyatira, Philadelphia, and so on. So it was written to this church in Ephesus, but it had a wider reading. Yep. And uh, Paul needs us to know, and God needs us to know as we study his word, what Ephesus was like. How do we know? Acts chapter 19 tells us what Ephesus was like. It was a big city. Now, you're going to have to take my word for this. You can read Acts 19 between this week and next. It was big, 250,000 people. That's a big city in the ancient world. And thereby, the, the culture of Ephesus rippled out through the whole region. Now, if you were going to pinpoint one landmark in Edinburgh that makes Edinburgh famous, what would it be? The castle. And those of us who live in the city kind of live in the city and we look at it and we think, well, there's just a big rock in the middle of the city with a castle on it. Some of you might have come to Edinburgh to study and you think, you don't think, oh, this is wonderful. Yeah. And it is amazing, you know, we only ever go to places like the castle when we have people staying with us, but it is amazing. This big castle with this big rock. In Ephesus, there was something similar, except the hill was bigger. And on top of that hill, there was a massive temple in Ephesus to Diana or Artemis. And on worship days, 50,000 people would gather in that temple. Imagine that. Yesterday, Celtic Park, 50 Odd thousand people watch Celtic win 4-1, apparently. 50,000 people in Ephesus. So imagine you are a local church in Ephesus, like Chalmers is in Edinburgh. And somewhere in the city, that day, 50,000 people were gathering to worship this pagan god, Diana. And the cult of Diana or Artemis just influenced Everything in that city. It was where the power was. It was the center of commerce and business. It was physically the biggest thing. And it was morally dominant in the city. The cult of Artemis encouraged prostitution and all sorts of stuff. And the whole spirituality of Artemis cult, Diana cult, was that all of life was influenced by a spiritual realm. Stuff going on behind the scenes. And it impacted your day-to-day life. Now, imagine if you are a house church in Ephesus, in some back street with no name. Where would you think? What would you think? Where the real power was in that city? Where the dominant forces were? Now, that's the context into which Paul writes. And it 
back in our letter, all through the letter, it's clear that he is writing to that context. And we'll see that as we study it. Let me just show you one key phrase that occurs again and again. You see it at the end of verse 3. It's that phrase, uh, in the heavenly places. Now, if you were in Ephesus and you heard that word, in the heavenly places or in the spiritual realm, you would immediately go, this guy understands the culture of Ephesus. This guy understands that all the talk here is about the, the spiritual realm, the bit that you can't see, the unseen world, what's really going on. And that phrase runs right through the book. Now, Ephesus and Edinburgh, apart from both beginning with E, apart from both having a large rock with something on top of it, uh, they are very different. They are very different. Uh, and yet they're not very different. That sounds like a preacher's line, doesn't it? They're very different, and yet they're not. That's true, isn't it? Why? Because human nature is similar, and our culture is increasingly like a culture where the appearance of the dominant power structures in our culture are certainly not local churches in this. So where's it at in Edinburgh this morning? Where's it at? Where's the, where's the power? Where's the power being wielded? What's the most important stuff? Politically, culturally, wherever, spiritually. Physically, economically, spiritually, morally. What's the kind of spirit of our age that, 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 that is followed by the vast majority? This Thursday past, as churches, we gathered together in the basement of Charlotte Chapel or people who were working in the churches did at lunchtime, sharing with one another, praying for one another, all too conscious of our weakness. And of course, I was uh, preparing Ephesians and, and, and I was saying to the guys, you know, wherever you are with a minister, you're always going to hear whatever they're preaching on. Yeah. And I was saying to them, look, look, do we really feel, where is it really at in the city? Certainly not amongst our churches, is it? Now, we are all too conscious of churches, of our weakness and the mountains we have to climb and the tension, the opposition, the spiritual warfare. I think what's interesting too, particularly if you're a student perhaps, is the tiny, tiny minority that is the church in our culture. It's tiny numbers. Tiny numbers. You know, there are, what, fifty-five to 60,000 students in Edinburgh. That's a lot. Round about 15 to 2% will find their way into churches. It's tiny, tiny, tiny numbers. Now, very often, I think, in church life, and I'm conscious of this, we spend a lot of time teaching on parts of the Bible that talk about how hard it is to live as a Christian. And we talk about taking up your cross and all of that. And that's really important. It's a big emphasis in the New Testament. But from time to time, it's helpful for us to turn to a letter like Ephesians, where Paul writes to local churches in that city that are very like local churches in this city, and you can agree with me or not as we study the letter that our situation is very similar to there, and he writes to kind of get them round the shoulders to encourage them, and he wants you and me to know by the end of this letter who we are in Christ. He wants you and I to know our identity. And he wants us to know who we are as a church. And he wants us to know what the purpose of these 40 or 50 little local churches across this city that are faithful to the gospel and the word of God. Why are they here? 
Why are they in this city? Why do we want more of them? And he wants to excite us. Imagine that. Your hearts will be excited. It will not show on many of your faces. But he does want to excite us. And he wants to issue in us praise. He wants us to sing like never before. He wants us to understand who we are as individuals and who we are as a church. And he wants us to long to go to church on a Sunday or a small group. That sounds like a minister thing to say. But, but you know, people will often say to me, well, Sunday must be hard. I, th- I love Sundays. I'm at my most energized by Sunday night. Not always, sometimes. Because we want to be here. Ephesians is going to tell us why. Now, let me just underscore this. The wonderful thing about all that it's going to tell us in here, this is not escaping from reality. Yeah? It's precisely the opposite. What we're going to do is escape to reality. Yeah? We're going to, we're going to get our heads around what reality is, not escape from it. Now, here's the deal. You've got to work hard as well. Let me just encourage those of you who've come up to university that tomorrow morning or a week tomorrow when your lectures start, you need to give 95% of your attention to your studies. Yep, from day one. Your parents will be glad for me to tell you that. But Ephesians needs 100% from day one. Okay? I want you to work hard with me. And I want you to work hard with Andy and the others at night from around One Kings. I want you to work hard with us. I want you to read this stuff and pray about it. If you want to listen to stuff online from other people preaching it, we'll give you links to great stuff on this. So that by the end of it, you and I will know the answers to the questions. Why did Paul write it? What does the letter say? We've begun this morning to consider why he wrote it to encourage us as churches about who we are. And as individuals. Now, let's turn now to what does it say? Well, it says lots of things. Let me just highlight four of the big things this morning by way of introduction. First, that God is a cosmic plan that is centered on Jesus Christ. Um, Right at the start of the letter, our attention is turned to God. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's always good to come to church on a Sunday to learn something about God more than it is to learn something about how I should live as a Christian. The Bible is primarily a book about God. It's when you get your head around God that you begin to live rightly. So Ephesians begins, blessed be the God and Father. We're at the God level immediately. And as Christians as a church, we need a clear vision and understanding Of God and what Ephesians teaches us about God is that He is a cosmic plan. Cosmic plan. I wrestle with that as a phrase. It's uh, the best way I can think of to summarize this line of teaching in the letter. And by cosmic plan, I mean something like an unalterable, unassailable, utterly sovereign plan over all things and people that is just not going to change. Now, get this it is a plan whose inception or beginning was before the foundation or the creation of the world. And a plan whose fulfillment is in the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth, the world that is to come. When we make plans in our families, they usually uh, begin 
uh, even the best of them yesterday and they run out tomorrow. You know, well, we have big plans in our life. You guys might have plans for the next 20 years. But God's cosmic plan had its beginnings or its inception before this world was in existence. Before God said, let there be. And God's plan, his cosmic plan, and we'll define what a plan is in a minute, runs on beyond this world into the new creation. Now let me show you the book ends, verse 3 again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Now that's a mind-blowing statement, and it will raise many questions in your minds that we will try to some extent to answer next week when we come back to it. But let me just impress this on us now. If you are sitting here as a Christian, you were chosen before the foundation of the world. Now, that's an astonishing thing to see. What exactly it means, how that can be, why he has chosen us, we cannot fully know. It is beyond our ability to understand, but it's true. Nothing that God does is contingent on anything. We are not the center of God's plan. He is. Before the foundation of the world. And the fulfillment, when is the fulfillment? Verse 10 of chapter 1, a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him in Christ Jesus, things in heaven and earth. And what Paul is talking about in chapter 1, verse 10, is the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth, What does it look like, the new heavens and the new earth? Well, it looks like a place where everything will be united in perfect harmony, where Christ will be united with his bride, the church. That's later on in Ephesians chapter 5. And where people of every nation, every tribe, every language will be united in perfect relationship with one another and with Christ forever. So that's God's cosmic plan. It's inception before the foundation of the world. It's fulfillment in the world to come. And if that's the scope of it, the breadth of it, the power behind it is limitless. The power of God is conveyed in many places in the letter. Let me refer you to 1, chapter 1, verse 19. The immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Now that's an interesting verse. The immeasurable greatness of his power. How does Paul end it? Toward us believe so God has a cosmic plan that runs before the world was created to long after the world is renewed so what does that do for your perspective what does it do for you as a Christian what does it do for us as a church it does this we have no reason to be down in ourselves nor be discouraged the great power structures of our world will come and go And one obvious illustration of that is that you can go to the city of Ephesus today and you can see one or two stones and columns that used to be the temple of Diana. And God has a cosmic plan and that plan is centered on Jesus Christ. You'll see even in this introductory section how many times Jesus is mentioned. So verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The end of verse 4, in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. 
Verse 6, in the beloved, that's Jesus. Verse 7, in him, Jesus. Verse 10, God's plan is to unite all things in him, Jesus, and so on. God's plan is centered on Jesus Christ. And uh, Ephesians will build up for us a rich picture of Jesus. Now, what is the point of the fact that God's plan, his salvation plan, is centered on Jesus? It means two things. It means his plan is not vague. It's not some kind of otherworldly pie-in-the-sky thing. And to some extent, if I'm telling you that God has a plan that was in his mind to have you here and to create this church before the world began, you're going to think, it's going to blow my mind. If that plan runs on into, this is too big for me to grasp. But 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 it's all grounded in Jesus. and You can see him. You can listen to him. He lives in you by his spirit. We need to grasp the vastness of it. And yet, the focus is on Jesus Christ. So, why did Paul write this letter? He wants these little churches in that great city to realize that they are part of this cosmic plan. Before the foundation of the world, it will run to the new creation that is grounded in Christ. Nothing in this world, by way of power structures comes remotely close to the power of God behind whose plan this is. And no plan of men or women will ever, ever outlast or change God's plan. That leads us to the second major theme in the letter, who we are as Christians. And of course, they are related Christians are described in the letter as those in Christ. Now, think of the logic of this. God has a plan. Big plan. My arms aren't wide enough. That plan is grounded in. Now, my arms are doing a different thing now. A cross. In Christ. And Paul describes you sitting here as being in Christ. See the logic? God's plan, in Christ, you are in Christ. It's all connected into one. And because God's plan is centered on Jesus Christ, you can know as a Christian through faith and trust in Jesus that you are part of that plan. And uh, Therefore, when you drive home from church today or cycle home, or a number of people cycled to service one and I think had no idea that it's a long grind on the way up. And I said to them, well, after Ephesians, it's just a breeze and a big downhill on the way back. So enjoy it. And I said, think about the fact as you cycle home, as you get the bus home, as you drive home, that you, if you were a Christian, were in the mind of God before the foundation of this world. Before he said, let us make humanity in our image, God knew you'd be here. Now, how that is, we can't get our heads around. We're not meant to. We're meant to get our heads around the majesty and the sovereignty and the splendor of God. And you will live, if you are a Christian, forevermore, for eternity, without end, and a new creation where everything will be united. Get your mind around that as you drive home and be careful not to crash. Now, next week, we'll come back to look in detail about who we are as Christians. We'll look at issues like adoption, predestination, redemption, Holy Spirit indwelling us, 
the, the blessings, the blessings, the blessings we have in Christ. More of that next week. Now, see on the sheet. While Ephesians has a good deal to teach us about who we are as Christians, it is just as much, I think probably more, to say about the identity and purpose of the church. Now, a lot of us are asked the question, um, what church do you go to? And the answer to that question is usually got a name. Um, and then you, what's it like? And you describe it and so on and so forth. And uh, people will say to me often, what's your church? And of course, they mean which church are you the minister of and all that. And so what Ephesians is going to do is it's going to get beyond that and, and it's going to tell us what this group of people is with those who come to the other services in this church, exactly what our identity is in God's mind. And as you think out across the city to the 30, 40 or whatever it is, living churches in the city, what are they there for? And why we need more of them? Now, let me just be clear, and Ephesians will be clear. We need to distinguish between what as humans we often call the church and what God says the church is. They're not, they're not sets that necessarily meet up. You cannot be a church. You cannot be a Christian unless you're in Christ. You cannot be a church unless you are in Christ, in the gospel, under his word, under his lordship. You might call yourself a church. You might call yourself a Christian. But if Christ is not the king in the head and the heart, you're not. So what we're talking about in Ephesians is local churches, living churches across a city like this. And we're not talking about other ones. We need to turn the spotlight in and of ourselves. And uh, the letter says something astonishing about the church. Now, at this point in the first service, um, people were beginning to fidget. You're all sitting perfectly still, so I don't need to encourage you to listen. But do listen to this bit. This is astonishing. And the penny will not drop uh, instantly. Um, it may do. It didn't drop with me instantly. Uh, Paul has something astonishing to say about local churches in Ephesus, local churches in this city, local churches across Scotland this morning. What are they? What is their identity and purpose? Given that they don't look much compared to the real centers of power and influence in the city. Only very few care about what's going on in the churches in this city this morning. Why are we here? Who are we, our identity and our purpose? Chapter 3, verses 1 to 13. Turn to that. A key section, the central section in the letter. Paul is explaining the mystery of the gospel that has been revealed to him that he has been called to preach. He is to preach, verse 8, be the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. What's the plan? Verse 10, key verse in Ephesians, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now, now, as in right now, be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And chapter 3, verse 10 is a key verse in the letter. Through the church, local churches scattered across the world, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities. What does that mean? It means this, that the church, the true church of Christ, is, if you like, a prototype in the world of what the new creation will be like in eternity. And that's an astonishing thing. Now, remember when God's plan is to be fulfilled, chapter 1, verse 10. 
Remember what chapter 1 verse 10 says? When all things, everything, will be united together under Christ. Now come to the now. What is a local church? What are we? We are a group of people, a community of people who are what? United under Christ. We're disparate. We're different characters, different personalities, different ages, different backgrounds. We would never be united unless we were united in Christ. And when you walk into this church with all its warts and its failings, and in spite of its minister and all his eccentricities, if you walk into a living church, you are walking into a community that will show you, unlike anything else on this planet, what eternity will be like. And now you begin to see where the real action is in the city of Ephesus on a Sunday morning. Now you begin to see where the real action is in Edinburgh on a Sunday morning. The local churches, the living churches, are the, the prototype of all eternity. Now, you're going to sit here and think, oh my goodness me, what a disaster we are if that's what we're supposed to be. Now, wait till chapter 4 and we'll see how we're supposed to be. But don't be down on yourself though. God's not. He wants us to see that we are his revelation of his wisdom, his plan, now in this city, in the living churches. And that is simply astonishing. I think people think, and we think as Christians often, that living churches in a city like Edinburgh are kind of a, especially evangelical ones, whatever that means, are kind of a strange set of the population. A little eccentric, a little extreme. The living churches in this city are not a subset of the population of this city. They are a subset of the everlasting city. Yeah? We're not a subset this way of our culture. We're a subset of eternity in a local church. And when you think, think of beyond Edinburgh, think of every local church gathered across the world today. When did the first church services begin? What, 10 hours ago? Where was it be? Australia. I think. I might have got that totally wrong. I think that's right. And then right round the globe, how many local churches are there in the world? I don't know. 100,000? More? All over these hundreds of thousands of little communities, some big, some tiny, is the revelation of the wisdom of God to the globe today. You walk into one of them, you walk into the prototype of eternity on earth. Now, the church must live under the lordship of Christ to be a living church. But if that is done, communities of Christians are a subset. So there is no reason to get depressed, is there? There is no reason to get discouraged. Just marvel at what it means to be in a living church. Now, in terms of the purpose of the church, let me deal with that under the heading how we are to live. That, as I have said, takes up chapters 4, 5, and 6 of the letter. That begins on November the 6th. You've got to wait till then patiently because Paul takes three chapters to explain who we are in Christ because he wants us to know before he tells us how we are to live like Christ and 
for Christ. And believe me, and I hope you do, it is in grasping chapters 1 to 3 that will make by far and away the biggest difference to us. Who we are as Christians, who we are as a church. Let me mention just two ways in which we are to live. Here's a little preview of November the 6th and following. Number one, we are to live in unity with one another in the church. Now, this is great. Turn to chapter 4. Just look at it. Chapter 4, verses 1 to 16 is about what? Unity in the church. Why is the first practical application of how we are to live as a church on unity? Why? Because, think of it, big cosmic plan of God will be fulfilled when everything in the world, in the new creation, will be united under Christ. If we are the prototype of the new creation in this world, now in this city, we are to demonstrate the unity of all things and who we are. So what is the first thing that Paul impresses upon us? Live united with each other. What is the target of the devil in every local church? Disunity. Because it blows apart the prototype on the earth, which is unity. You see the point in Paul's logic. The second way we are to live as the church, of course, there are many more than these two. But as well as living out our identity in Christ, that is our unity, we are to proclaim the message of Christ. See, the local church in a city like Edinburgh is both the locus of God's wisdom. It's where God's wisdom is seen. And it's the place where God's message is known and should therefore be held out. And when you begin to grasp this, see, motivation in evangelism is not a rod hitting us across our backs. Motivation in evangelism is good theology. When we understand God and his purposes in the world, we are motivated to go and tell the gospel. And even me, with all my weariness and readiness in evangelism, when I read this, when I preach this, when I stand up here, when I wrestle with this in my study, I just want to go and tell my neighbors that the big deal, the main deal, they've got to get on board with God's plan. It's wonderful stuff. Now, let me finish with this. How will the letter impact us? How will the letter impact us? Well, God will do what he does with it. But in every New Testament book, or in every Bible book, it doesn't just give us content, it gives us reaction. Yeah, and the reactions here are the reactions that will happen in this room. How will this letter impact us? Well, it will give us confidence. I think that's the first application. It will give us confidence that weak as we feel and look, we have no reason to be down on ourselves as Christians and as a church. Secondly, it will give us vigilance. Vigilance because the battle may have been won at the cross, but spiritual warfare goes on until the new creation. It's interesting how the letter begins, this marvelous, marvelous, one long 200-word sentence, which has been described as a symphony of grace. How does the letter end? Chapter 6. Spiritual warfare. Yet we need both. Confidence, chapter 1. Vigilance. Chapter 6, pick up your sword. And the devil will do everything he possibly can 
primarily in two ways. Here is his, here is his two primary targets. One, the unity of a church, because it blows apart God's revelation of his wisdom to the world. The unity of a local church. The second thing the devil will seek to do is, dunt, is blunt the sharp edge of the gospel the church proclaims. So we need to be vigilant. We need to be vigilant. And I feel as minister in the church, the need for vigilance at the moment. Confidence and yet vigilance. The third thing, or the last but one, Ephesians will do for us is it will issue in joyful praise to God. Your heart must burn within you when you get your head around this. It must do. And think of chapter one. And it's great we've got uh, our musicians singing today and, and singing with real heart as Christians and playing. All through chapter one, you get this phrase to the praise of his glorious grace, to the praise of his glorious grace, to the praise of his glorious grace. And, and I want to see your faces sing like you are getting your heads around this marvelous stuff. And you want to see my face sing like we are. And you want your hearts to sing. That there is no place that is better to be in the world than in a church. And of course the other thing Ephesians will do as we work through it. Is that it will carry us as Christians through life. More steady. Because we know where we're going to all eternity. And it will ask lots of people who aren't yet Christians who hear this, not to get left behind when the Lord Jesus comes again. Let's pray. Father, we pray that as we study Ephesians over the coming term, you would speak to us clearly that we might understand who we are as Christians, who we are as a church, our identity and our purpose, and how we are thereby to live. And we pray that the letter would impact us in these three ways, that it would give us confidence, vigilance, and issue itself in joyful praise to the Lord. For those of us who are Christians, we pray that it would help us keep on going in the Christian life, knowing where life is headed in the end. And for those who are not yet Christians, we pray, Lord, that they would be drawn in, drawn to Christ, drawn to the one in whom all this planning takes its fulfillment, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died to redeem us, to forgive us trespasses, and to bring us home. Lord, we pray that no one in our church family who comes along week by week will be left behind spiritually, will not be part of your plan. Have mercy upon our souls, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.